Well, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast. I should say not just another episode, but the start of season two, episode number 25. It is our goal to bring you another 24 episodes this year. That's two episodes a month in conversation with different Christian leaders and thinkers from across New Ground churches and beyond. Incidentally, if you're part of a church living out your faith in the marketplace and you think that you'd have something valuable to contribute to our conversations, then do please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you and I'd love to spend time discussing with you what it looks like to be a Christian in your particular space. So why not drop me an email on podcast at newgroundchurches.org with some information about yourself and what you do and we'll see where we can go together. Well today friends I'm looking forward to bringing you a conversation I had with a good friend of mine Natalie Williams. Natalie and I have known one another for several years. She's part of King's Church Hastings. She's a former journalist who grew up in one of the most deprived areas in England and yet is now the CEO of Jubilee Plus, which is a national charity that looks to equip churches to engage in social action. She's the author of three books, The Myth of the Undeserving Poor, A Church for the Poor and A Call to Act. She's very politically engaged and influential in that arena too and is a very busy woman. We had an honest conversation about life and leadership and some of the things that God has done in her life over the past few months and years. It was a real privilege, a real honor at times emotional but I pray that it blesses you and encourages you wherever you are enjoy thanks for having me it's great to be here Natalie why don't we kick things off with you just sharing with us something that you've learned either about yourself or leadership since this whole crisis began um yeah well I think you know the big lesson for me of the last six months or last year has been that leadership is a lot harder than I anticipated. And I've been in leadership of various forms for a while, but I've not been kind of the leader of something. And so having, during the pandemic, taken on the leadership of Jubilee Plus uh, just a couple of months ago, I, I have found that no one warned me that leadership is actually really hard. And so I've found that I'm much more tired. Uh, things like, I have to concentrate in meetings because People want to know what I think about a lot of things. And, you know, you know me, Jez, I am opinionated, but I actually don't have an opinion on everything. And yet now I'm expected to kind of make decisions on, on everything. And so um, even just talking to Martin Charlesworth, who handed over the leadership of Jubilee Plus to me, um, he said, yeah, Nat, you used to love coming to meetings, paying attention for half of them, and then just chucking in a couple of great ideas that made us all think you were brilliant. He said, that's not your role anymore. Now you have to pay attention to everything. And so that's been a bit of a shock. And, and, and I'm, I'm joking, but I'm also serious about it. I've noticed that that makes me much more tired. Um, I had no idea the pressure that feels like. So I feel a lot more sympathy now for church leaders, <laughs> even my own. And, and now can perhaps recognise that I might have caused quite a lot of grief um, and added <laughs> to some tension. Over the years, if he's listening to this, he'll be thrilled that I finally acknowledged that publicly. Um, but yeah, so genuinely for me, it has been that leadership is is really hard and you really cannot do it without the home spirit. And so I, I feel like I'm more dependent on God because I'm so out of my depth, but in ways that I am uh, daily enjoying and um, wrestling with. And, you know, it's a, it's a joy and it's a and it's yeah, a struggle. Yeah, uh, in a blog that um, I think you wrote recently, you 
you said, when I was a kid, we lived in the 16th floor of a block of council flats. We didn't have central heating. We shared one phone on the ground floor with everyone else. I had free school meals at primary school and I went to the roughest secondary school in the area. And if anyone would have told me then that I would become the chief executive of a national charity, it would have baffled me. Uh, I thought it'd be great just to spend a little bit of time getting to know Natalie, getting under the lid of Natalie and uh, and finding out about some of the, the kind of wisdom for life that you've learned. Um, why don't we start with that, just looking at um, the whole area of poverty and uh, what your experience of church was like when you first got introduced to Christianity and became a Christian? Yeah, sure. Well, I think um, for me, there was obviously so much to learn when I became a Christian. I, I hadn't read much of the Bible. I was familiar with some Bible stories, you know, like David and Goliath and things like that, but I didn't know much of the Bible. Uh, I had very limited experience of church and didn't really know an awful lot about Jesus. And so to suddenly um, get saved, there was obviously this, for most of us, we have this, this radical culture shock spiritually. But for me, I also really experienced like a class or poverty culture shock too, because um, when I got saved, I didn't see a whole load of people in church with my sort of background. And, and that actually isn't really the case. There were quite a few people with my sort of background, but you wouldn't have known it at that point. Um, and so even things like going to people's houses for dinner, I'd literally never um, seen my parents go to someone's house for dinner on like a midweek evening. That just wasn't something you did. And suddenly I'm in a culture where that's what you do all the time and that's the way hospitality is expressed. Um, and it's really interesting because what happened was I started to kind of mimic the behaviour around me. Um, lots of it made me feel really out of my depth. I've talked... Many people have probably heard me talk about eating meals. I'd never seen food served, like potatoes in one dish, vegetables in another, and meat in another, and then you serve yourself. In fact, I joke with friends now, like, well, why do you make me serve myself? I've come to your house. Can't you put food on a plate for me? You know, kind of. Um, and, and some of my friends do deliberately put food on a plate for me, even now, even though I'm much more comfortable in those settings. But the, I was out of my depth in a whole load of ways like that, where I had no idea what the correct behaviour was, because I'd never actually seen it so for me there's a whole load of areas where I just feel at odds with church culture um, and I've learned thank goodness uh, to be a bit more comfortable with that I think God has helped me tremendously to to find a place of settling a little bit in that and not being so unsettled by it all the time like I used to be yeah one of the things that Tom Head commented on when we had a conversation was Part of his experience of working class culture was there's a lot more honesty and upfrontness than there is the kind of nuanced couching of terms in middle class, which he equated or experienced a lot more when he entered the church. Is that an observation that you'd share as well? Oh, absolutely. I, th I think it's funny. I totally agree with Tom on that. I think um, even just talking to some friends of mine a few days ago about how they were in a situation that was really frustrating for them. And I was just like, well, why didn't you say something? And they're like, oh, no, I didn't want to be rude. And so I think for the middle classes, there's, there's this priority around politeness and not offending people. Whereas I think for people from a working class background, it's like, no, you just tell the truth and you're just honest. And, and I think even, you know, thinking about something like hospitality, um, I, I know that if I was around someone's house, uh, some friends of mine who, who live on a local estate here and they needed me to go, they'd just turn around and say, right, you know, kind of sling hook, I've got things to do, get out, you need to go. Um, whereas when I hang out with my middle class friends, I'm like, I have no idea when you're supposed to leave. 
and, and I've talked to friends about this and still no one can tell me, how do you actually know when you hang out at someone's house when you're supposed to go? Because you don't want to be rude and leave too early. Like I know that you can't literally get up from the dinner table and say, thanks for the food, see you later. But how long are you supposed to stay? So you're, so you're like respecting the fact they've just fed you and you're looking like you enjoy their company, but you're not kind of staying there and they're thinking, gosh, we wish you'd left an hour ago. And there's all sorts of things like that, which I think if we were just more honest in general, it would be great if, if people just said, you know, what they thought uh, with within reason and with being respectful. I think, you know, it's one of the ways where I think I wonder if some of the working class values, we'd be better off if they're more of them were in the church. Um, although in some areas we're better off with the middle class values being there. So it's not it's not one or the other. It's just learning from each other, actually. Yeah, and and one of the things that you know, as you point out, that the our culture of our, our sorry our family culture of origin shapes us so much um, subconsciously in a way that we are not we don't appreciate. It's very hard to shed them, and it's very hard to even recognise them until you enter an environment that seems to operate differently. And I do really appreciate that about yourself is that you are able to you know you almost have this kind of ability to critique. As though an outsider, but as an insider, which you know, when when you enter any new organisation for the first time, you're an, you have this kind of privilege of being an outsider who's new to something, and you can say, "Why did you do this? What about that?" But when you've been there too long, you kind of just get absorbed into the culture. Whereas, from what I appreciate about you, so you you you've been able to hold on to the values of your kind of cult, family, cultural upbringing, origin but also still seem thoroughly embedded into local church? Or is that is that a constant tension for you? Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think it's that I've managed to do that. I think by the grace of God, it's sort of happened. But I think that's what I'm talking about. We're saying I don't, I feel like I don't fit in. Because actually now I'm not working class enough anymore for my working class friends, but I'm not middle class enough to feel like I fit in with the church. I think also it's just, I don't know, I feel like God's wired me in a really kind of, weird way if for want of a better way of putting it in that you know I I'm very open about the fact that even my faith has felt like a battle almost since the moment I became a Christian so my whole faith journey has been one of wrestling with God and and that's meant I've backslidden in the past but even when I'm really on fire for God and passionate about him I think wrestling really characterizes my own personal journey and I think Either that's unusual or it's just unusual to talk about it. I don't know which one it is, but I, there's there's lots of things like that where I just, I feel like I am outside of most circles. Um, I don't feel like I fit in particularly anywhere. I don't feel like I fit in in terms of leadership. I don't feel like I fit in in kind of normal church culture. Uh, I don't feel like I fit in in non-church, you know, like kind of non-Christian culture but I find myself in all these different places where I feel like I don't fit and and like I say thankfully certainly in the last five years or so I feel like God has helped me to just be more comfortable with that because actually for a long time a lot of that wrestling was just being frustrated with myself being frustrated with people around me um just even even some of the stuff where I feel like I see how things should change but it feels like a lot of people around me don't. And that might be because I'm wrong. <laughs> but when it, it whether it's because I'm wrong or right, it in one sense it's a frustrating place to live. It's kind of like a it's like for prophetic people, I guess. You you live with that tension 
of where you think things should be and where things actually are. And so you find you're, you're almost constantly frustrated. And so one of the biggest things I feel like God has been doing me in the last five years has been um, helping me to be okay with my own heart um, and, and really helping me to have manage my own emotions, my own uh, heart, my own thoughts better than I have in the past. Now, I'm still not perfect with that, but I definitely think there's been quite a lot of growth in that whole self-management, self-awareness, um, and then able to, I guess, show people around me a lot more mercy and kindness, um, as well as show that to myself a lot more. So that's been really, really valuable because it means I can now sit here and say, I don't fit in and that's all right. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, I hear you in one sense as someone who, for whom his faith has, has been a wrestle from day one. I'm an all or nothing. And so on days where I don't feel you know alive in god i'm tempted to be nothing that day but i can't if you're a leader then you have responsibilities i've just been really so i really kind of salute and appreciate and validate that experience to some degree i'd love to know how you how you've kind of come to terms with that wrestle you said that you've learned it and god showed you i'd love to know more specifically exactly how like how do you learn to live with that discontent which i think is partly partly is you know you're a leader who's got a vision of where you want to take things that's always going to be um it comes with the territory of feeling discontent a lot but when it comes to your faith what are some things in particular that you'd say you you really have wrestled with and you are in an ongoing way well i think first of all i'd say partly how i've kind of got to this place of feeling more settled with it is just by complete honesty with god which sounds really obvious but I think it isn't as obvious as we think, but if God knows every thought, he knows every motive of our hearts, we may as well just be really honest. So I've cultivated that in my prayer life. I think like kind of a brutal honesty with God where I'm not afraid to tell God uh, even things that might sound outrageous, like if I'm angry with him about something, well, you know, what right have I got to be angry with God? But the fact is, if I am, I may as well talk to him about it. If I'm disappointed in him, I've experienced a lot of disappointment with God. Well, I may as well talk it through with him. I may as well tell him exactly how I feel because he knows it anyway. So I think that bringing that honesty before God, I think um, some of the things I've wrestled with have been, yeah, disappointment that life doesn't perhaps look how I thought it might look. Um, and that's disappointment in a whole load of ways. Um, my best friend from when I was 16 years old was a fierce atheist. And we used to, I was newly saved and overzealous and we used to get right into it. And I believe that God told me that she was going to get saved. And a few years ago, she died. And the all the evidence would suggest that she died just as fierce an atheist as she was back when we were 16. Now, of course, some people have said to me, but you don't know what happened in her final moments. No, I don't. But I have to find a way to be okay with God if she didn't get saved. And so one of my wrestles has been, God, I believe you you put me in her life. And yet, you know, I went to her humanist funeral that she wrote for herself and it was hopeless. Like there was no hope there. It was the most awful funeral I've been to because it just was empty of, of anything. But that's exactly how she wanted it. So it was very true to her. And, and wrestling with God over that. Wrestling with God, um, my nan became a Christian um, when she was 70 years old and that was glorious but then she suddenly unexpectedly got sick she was fit and healthy and she was in hospital and I prayed by her bedside the first few days she was in hospital god if this is if this is going to end in death please let her die quickly 
And then I sat there every day for 11 and a half weeks as she died horribly and slowly and painfully and couldn't and was fully with it in her mind. But her body was dying and she couldn't talk because she had, you know, the thing in the tube in through her throat. And it was awful. It's one of the most awful experiences of my life. And, and so you go, God, I'm going to talk to you about this because it's awful. And, and what's the point in pretending that I'm not disappointed? What's the point in pretending that um, I, I, I don't think you've done the wrong thing, God? Now, obviously, he didn't. But then there's more low level wrestling, like at the minute with Jubilee Plus. Um, we keep applying for funding and being rejected. And I'm like, God, what? I was praying for a specific amount to come in for Jubilee Plus as a sign of God being with me in my new role. So when that didn't happen, when I took on the new role, I was a bit like, hmm, what, what does this mean? I thought, what a wally that I tied those two things together in my prayer life. Like, and then I've got to wrestle with God and unpick some of that. So for me, there's just from, from the life and death stuff, to the little everyday stuff of did we get a grant for a few thousand pounds that we applied for or not. I just think wrestling with God is healthy and it leads us to a place where when we're honest with him, we can hear him speak into the deepest hurts in our heart and, and just come to a, a, just such a profound understanding that the Bible says underneath are his everlasting arms, that we're not kind of clinging to him desperately. He is upholding us even in those moments and and so yeah that's kind of some examples of what I've wrestled with and then kind of some of the journey wow do you ever in those wrestlings what stops you kind of veering back towards the land of atheism and doubt perhaps that you came from do you have moments where you think I'm not sure I can do this, perhaps not now, but maybe in the past, recent past, I'm not sure I can do this Christian thing anymore with some of the ethical dilemmas I know we've talked about that you face with as a believer and holding scripture and trying to wrestle with cult where culture's at and, and the church's witness towards certain groups in society thinks is abhorrent and embarrassing and, and is exactly the opposite of what you think Jesus' people should have been like. Um what stops you going too far down that road? Yeah, well, I guess it might sound odd to say this, but I'm thankful that I've backslidden in the past because going away from God and trying all sorts of other things and just being thoroughly miserable, feeling like I missed Jesus so much um, when I backslid, but felt like I couldn't come back and still felt like, although I missed him, I, I, I was angry and I felt like there must be, um, other places I could find hope and find satisfaction and having spent those uh, several years away from God and realizing that there is there is kind of no choice um, for me because he is my only hope um, but what I mean by no choice for me specifically is I just can't do life well apart from Jesus and uh, I know some people can I just I just can't find joy I can't find hope I can't find satisfaction and so having experience that um i think it's such a massive deterrent um for me from ever feeling like anything else could appeal um that by the way though isn't to say that when i'm going on with god i always have joy hope and satisfaction in fact i'd say that i often don't have those things even when i'm passionately running after jesus um in fact i've battled with depression for many years I've had counseling uh, for two and a half years that I finished two years ago that 
has been absolutely just incredibly helpful. Um, and so for me, though, I, I you know, in Lamentations, it says this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. And for me, it's that calling to mind when I look at what God's done, when I look at where I've been without him. I, I just I just know there's no option for me. I, I have to follow Jesus or life isn't worth living. Um, and and so, yeah, so that sounded a bit bleak, but that is kind of my my story. What were some of the, the main things that you felt God did through your counselling? Um, is there some kind of just nuggets of wisdom or helpful things that got you unstuck that are OK to share? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm really happy to share about it. I, I got to a very dark place, to be honest. And I just mentioned that I without Jesus, life isn't worth living. And I actually got to the place where even with Jesus, I wasn't sure that life was worth living because I felt like I was never going to be free of certain issues in my life. Like rejection felt like it spoke a bigger word over me than the name of Jesus. And I just seemed unable to shake some of the ways in which that was shaping every relationship, my working life, like literally every, every friendship, it, it felt like it was destructive and I felt like I was never going to be free. And, you know, by the point at which I started counselling, I've been a Christian for over 20 years. So I'm like, well, if you haven't done it by now, God, you're probably not going to do it. And so what's the point? And, and in my darkest days really did come to a very, uh, yeah, bleak place where I think, you know, one of my friends in the church was so worried about me that she came around my flat in the middle of the night in her pyjamas, left her husband and three kids at home and came and, and it's interesting because I said to her afterwards, I was OK. And I told you that I wouldn't do anything stupid. But she said to me, I know, but I knew that you needed someone to be with you and you needed to know that you weren't alone. And it was just so powerful to me how God in that moment when she arrived was talking to me about you're not alone. No matter what you're telling yourself at this point, no matter what you're believing, you are not alone. And through counselling, I think. Some of the stuff I learned that was really helpful was even just what happens in your brain when you're um, kind of triggered. Um, and, you know, the whole fight, flight or freeze, that when your brain has gone into high alert and is telling you that you're in danger from whether that's from, you know, a bear chasing you or whether it's rejection, the same thing happens in your brain. That part takes over and tells you you are not safe and it heightens your, your senses uh, you become hypervigilant for things that will reinforce that you're in danger. And it shuts down the part of your brain uh, that makes rational decisions. So through counselling, what I learned is that, I, you know, I remember sitting there really distressed with my counsellor going, I've been a Christian for over 20 years. Why can't I take my thoughts captive? And one of the most helpful things in the whole two and a half years of counselling that he said to me was, right now, you cannot take your thoughts captive. Your brain is not working. <laughs> That part of your brain is closed for business. You can't take your thoughts captive. And so one of the most valuable lessons I learned is that we have to do that work when we're okay. Don't wait until the crisis. Don't wait until we're emotionally heightened or afraid or um, depressed or exhausted or whatever. We have to do the work. And, and so often we don't. It's when we go into crisis or when something happens that sets us off. That's when we try and do the hard work of changing. But we need to do the work of changing in the good times, in the times when we're okay and settle. And that's when it has an impact when we're not. That for me was the, probably the most helpful thing I learned through the whole time. Although, to be honest, I could have answered that question with probably a dozen answers. It, it was, it's one of the best things I've done 
God broke through. So now I wouldn't say rejection speaks a louder word over me than Jesus. Like in fact, God has done more for me than I dared to hope was possible. Uh, it makes me quite emotional talking about it because I had really given up believing that God would do it in this life. And I'd given up believing that there's power in the gospel. And I used to say to God, you tell me that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in me. Where is it? This is part of the wrestling. Where is it, God? Because I'm not experiencing it. And it feels like that's wrong because Jesus bought it for me on the cross and I want it. Um, but it wasn't happening. And, and so I reached a place of just feeling like until I die, I will not know freedom from this particular thing. And, and gloriously, God has set me free. And it was a process. It wasn't a moment. It wasn't like a powerful, anointed person laying hands on me in an instant. It was a hard slog through two and a half years of counselling, through friends who walked that journey with me. But God brought breakthrough. And honestly, since the middle of 2019, almost every week since then, something has happened that has astonished me. There's this uh, precious little verse to me in um, Mark 7 where it says that those around Jesus were astonished beyond measure. And that's that's me. I am astonished beyond measure that God has done what I've given up hope believing he could do in this life. And um, I think it's in Luke's gospel at the end, after Jesus has risen from the dead, it says that the women and the disciples disbelieved for joy. And that's been my experience of the last two years, almost that I've disbelieved for joy. Sometimes I wake up and think, God, have you really done that? Because I so didn't think it would happen. Um, and I've known joy in ways I'd never believed possible. Yeah, sorry, I could probably talk about that all day. It's, it's been an amazing, an amazing journey with God through some real valleys. Um, but you know what I would say is that God has done his most precious and profound work in me in the valleys. And I would not undo a single valley that I've been through because that's where I've known God the closest to me. Wow. That's uh, truly moving and deeply inspiring and no doubt will offer a word of hope to many who are listening, who are perhaps walking through those valleys at the moment and living in that experience, particularly when you speak such things over yourself, such as I will never know an end to this experience of suffering. And, you know, because there are many experiences of suffering that Andrew Bunt rightly pointed out for us with the experience of, uh, and, and um, David Bennett with the experience of trans and with sexuality, that for, for David Bennett at least and others, it's an experience of suffering that he thinks I'm not going to know an end to this in this life. But there's joy and contentment and rest in the midst of it. So I do appreciate there are experiences like that that we do have to walk through. But um, yeah, I find that in incredibly moving, Natalie. Thank you so much. You did say, I mean, you said God brought me through, but it was a hard slog. And I suppose it's that dynamic I'm interested in as well. We When we use the language, God did this, we often equate, we mean that, or we hear that to be meaning a momentous miracle miracle in a moment that transformed everything whereas you're saying I did a lot of hard work how do you live with talk to me about that dynamic of God did this but actually it sounds like it was you doing quite a lot of hard work yeah I mean to be honest I guess that's probably why I feel like my level of intimacy with God has increased through the valleys um, and that particular valley um, that, that I went through up until 2019 uh, lasted about six years and, and felt like an eternity. 
Um, but in it, there was, I guess, a sense in co-laboring um, <laughs> that God and I were in it together. And I didn't always feel that way. In fact, a lot of the time I felt like it was just me on my own and was like, God, where are you? But actually, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I look back on it and think, no, God was at work. And also just that God brought people alongside me. So I would say it wasn't just me and God. It was God, me and friends. Um, two friends in particular kept saying they had faith for me. And it would sometimes, to be honest, really annoy me because I'd just be like, well, I haven't. And I was a bit attitudey about it. I'd be like, well, I haven't got faith. So just whatever. Uh, but actually knowing that others have faith. I think that's what God does. So often it's not just you and God in a kind of room on your own, is it? It's it's that God um, speaks to you through people around you who love you really, really well. So so when I say God did it, I mean, God did it um, through ca my counsellor, through many of my friends and the people he put around me, through even the fact that a few years ago I had the opportunity to go and work for another church and on paper, it seemed a bit crazy that I turned it down, but it's like God knew that I needed to be where people knew me and where people, where I had enough of a track record that people wouldn't, um, I don't know, be overly phased by the fact that, you know, I was on a leadership team in a church and seemed to be having a massive crisis of faith, along with a crisis of mental health, um, along with a crisis of emotions, you know, it, I think if I'd been in a new church, it would have been a lot harder, but God knew that. And so God did it and the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart and my life and and just moment by moment, penny dropping revelation. But but again, not in this kind of one moment. And you know what? I used to feel rejected all the time and now I feel wonderful. That wasn't it. It was moment by moment realizing things like um, I hung out with a friend and um, I thought we were going to spend the whole day together and we ended up spending an hour together and she bought her boyfriend so for me I was like that's not really quality time but I didn't say anything and when I got home after this hour she texted me it was so great to spend quality time with you and I felt so rejected but when she texted me that for the first time I remember it distinctly thinking she doesn't think how I think and that was a real revelation my counsellor had been saying it for months. People don't always think the way you do. And I was like, nope, there's no other way to see these situations. The way I see it is the only logical conclusion. And suddenly in that moment when my friend texted me, it was great to get quality time with you. Just the penny dropped. She thinks that was quality time. That's weird. That's not quality time. And, and nothing changed from that moment on. But it was little moments like that that all began to add together. Of, so it was part counselling, part friends, part God. And then, yeah, I was determined to do the work. Um, I I was like, if my options are basically I don't want to be alive anymore or I have to go through the hard slog of change, then I'm better off going through the hard slog of change. And and so I was like, I'm going to do what it takes to, to lay hold of everything that Jesus has paid for. And that was my big thing. It felt like a real injustice. And obviously, with my work at Jubilee Plus, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about injustice. And I was like, if J Jesus, if you've paid for it, then it's mine. So I want it. And I, and I was determined to not kind of let go. But even then, I think that's because God has wired me a certain way where I um, people have said about me over many, many years that I'm tenacious. And often that's been a criticism. Um, it's been a you're like a dog with a bone you just won't let go of stuff 
but I think it's one of the best things God has uh, kind of built into me. It's one of the things I most love about myself is that he has made me tenacious and, and I, I won't let go. And so if I've got issues in my life that seem to be louder than, than the name of Jesus, well, I'm not going to stay in that place. Yeah, kind of. That's brilliant. You just use the phrase there. Um, one of the things I love about myself and that, that struck me as quite refreshing and to hear someone acknowledge that there are good things about themselves that the Lord's given and it's okay to acknowledge them. Has that been a journey as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I never, you know, until two years ago, I would have never said anything like that. Um, and I wouldn't have felt it. It wouldn't just be that I wouldn't say it out loud. I wouldn't have felt it or thought it. Um, you know, I was in quite a place of self-hatred. I could tell you all the things that are wrong with me. And I can still tell you those things too. But I wouldn't have really had anything that I loved about me. And I think one of the things that I've got in the habit of doing that I do as a regular, uh, you know, like um, probably not quite daily, but several times a week is I say to Jesus, what do you like about me today? Um, you know, tell me something that you put in me that you like about me. Tell me something that is a way that I reflect you. And that practice has been really, really helpful for just being able to say, actually, I love this about myself. Um, there's still a lot of things I want to change, but I can recognize I'm made in the image of God. So there must be good things in me. And, and to say that there aren't is dishonoring his creation. Um, you know, and, and I've never really got that verse in Psalm 139, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I've never really understood what what it means until more recently when I'm thinking, no, it means I'm made in the image of God and I reflect him to those around me in unique ways because no one else has my past, no one else has my personality, my, you know, the, the unique mix of all these things, my experiences, my gifting, um, everything God's done in my life, my upbringing, all of us, the mix of those things in us is unique. And so all of us can uniquely reflect our creator to those around us. And that's true of non-Christians as well. Um, and so just the more I've kind of been dwelling on that and, and pursuing that in my personal prayer life, the easier it's become to say, right, here's something I love about myself. Wow. That's wonderful. And you're right. Yeah, it's, it's not necessarily pride. And, and it's, in fact, the opposite of pride, to recognise this is a gift that God's given me rather than something I've earned. I didn't create myself like this. He did it. So I'm going to give him the credit yeah. by saying, I appreciate this. Thank you for doing that. Uh, whereas often yeah. we can be quite fearful of being proud or arrogant. You think, well, if you were proud and arrogant, you wouldn't have that fear necessarily. <laughs> Well, and sometimes there's a false humility, which is a form of pride in and of itself, isn't it? Where we won't say there's anything good about us because we don't, but it's almost like we don't want to come across like we're too full of ourselves or whatever. But I also think it is important though to have people around us who, so I've got loads of friends who, especially since taking on the leadership of Jubilee Plus, I've said, if you ever think I'm acting like I think I'm, you know, kind of a big deal around here or something like that, then just tell me straight away. Like if you see the slightest hint of it, I've, I've given several friends like total permission to if I if I start to act like I'm thinking too much of myself, then just come in and tell me straight away. Um, in fact, you know what? I'd give anyone that permission. Um, <laughs> anyone listening now, I'm going to get a flood of emails. <laughs> but seriously, I think it's important, isn't it, that we have people who can speak in and say when they're seeing that stuff in us. Uh, but it's also important that we recognise 
God made us and God doesn't make junk. That's a Tim Tim Keller quote. God does not make junk. So to just write ourselves off and be totally dismissive about ourselves is actually, I think, quite ungodly. Yeah, wow, that's really helpful. Uh, even hearing you, you talk as well, it reminds me that one of the big challenges we face as leaders, perhaps, or as human beings generally, is to learn to see ourselves the way that other people see us. Because it's fascinating as someone who, you know, isn't in the same town and church as you, knows you uh, from afar. We've spent a bit of fair, fair amount of time together, but I'm someone who has nothing but respect and appreciation for everything you do. I hold you up on a pedestal in my mind and think Natalie is inspiring, committed, faithful, practical, all those, you know, I would attribute lots of positive qualities and traits to you. And so to hear you say that you you know, reached a point of thinking so much the opposite that you didn't want to be alive anymore. It's just so saddening and surprising. But it's that challenge that we face of actually, yeah, what, can you speak into that? The kind of disparity between how other people see us. And it was not wrong what I think about you. It's not wrong. It's, it's not like you have big character flaws that, you know, we're going to unveil now. It's not wrong, but it, do, it doesn't align with how you see yourself. There's a mismatch of truth. Are you, can you reflect on that for us? Yeah, yeah, no, and I think that's true for a lot of us, isn't it? That we that we don't see ourselves as other people see us, and that can be in both good ways and bad ways. Like as in, um, we might not realise that we come across in certain negative ways towards people as well. And so I think that's where it's so important to say to people, you can speak in, you can say what you see. Um, and also, I think it's absolutely important that we um, encourage each other, that we do honour each other, that if if you see something in me that you value, that you tell me. I mean, I know you have. And it's not enough for someone to just say, you know, I really um, respect you and you inspire me. And then it's like, oh, I've got no problems anymore. <laughs> like my own thinking is is fine then. But I think the more we encourage and, and, and set a culture of encouraging, but also saying, this is what I see in you that I want to imitate in you. So I'm trying to do that with friends more and more and say, I see this in you and I recognise it's something about you and I want to be like you. And that actually can't be wrong to say because the Apostle Paul says, I think four or five times in his letters, imitate me. And, you know, if I said to you, hey, Jez, imitate me, you probably have real issues with me over that. But we should be imitating people around us. We, we should be seeing things in others and going, do you know what, I want to be like that. And, and then we should be actively saying to them, I want to be like that, so help me. How do you do that? Or or why do you do it this way? Or, you know, whatever it might be. So um, I think I think that's really important. I also think it is just about um, coming back to the truth of God's word time and time again and submitting our thoughts to what God says about us. Um, I don't think we ever get to a point where we don't need to do that anymore. I think, you know, even now, it's not like I never feel rejected. Um, and sometimes we actually get rejected. It's not just all in my head. Do you know what I mean? There is kind of times it actually happens. So now it's about, well, what do I do when that happens? What, Where is my sense of self-worth? Um, and, and I've got to get it from God first and foremost, because actually he's the only one who has the truly accurate perception of me um you know you might think too much of me others might think too little of me I might think too much or too little of myself but God knows exactly who I am and and so that's why I have to keep going back to him and saying well what do you think about me 
Um, and, and I mentioned, obviously, asking him outright, what do you love about me today? Obviously, I'm also praying, God, tell me where you want me to change. Tell me where you want me to be different. Point out my offensive ways to me. And I think it's both. It's, it's holding those things in, in balance that actually helps us to become more self-aware um, and then become kinder to ourselves but still take our sin seriously you know yeah, yeah, yeah. um oh, yeah. really helpful i think it's interesting you know we're in a culture that obsesses over celebrity and pursues fame and yet fame is that i want other people to know about me and speak well of me but almost as we've pointed out there unless you are content with yourself and how god's made you it doesn't matter how many people speak well of you you're still going to be a fragile and insecure vulnerable human being until like you said you learn to appreciate who god's made you to be and find your rest in that and that's i want to kind of steer things slightly because i mean a lot of what you what you said there about how you've found freedom from this crippling fear i guess you'd say stronghold fear of re of rejection uh, you said through has been through um the support of friends and i just i just noticed on your twitter feed that you'd retweeted something that someone said that i really liked that how many times the apostle paul wrote each phrase our lord 53 times my lord once that christianity is communal and you are not a free agent <laughs> invest in your church family yeah and so kind of want to talk about the impact that church family has been on you uh, has made on you particularly as a single woman in church life as well could you start to crack open some of that for us yeah sure well do you know i mean there are a lot of things that i think are really hard about being in church as a single person i've already mentioned there's quite a strong emphasis on marriage and family being of the highest priority and, and i don't despise that but it it's i think it's heavily weighted so that if you are single um particularly if you're getting on a bit um you can feel like your life is somehow less valid than other people's or your life experience is less valid so i think there's a lot that's hard i think of course you're in a minority so um that's always hard being in a minority um but there are so many things that i've found to be truly wonderful um in my singleness in church and some of that has just been people welcoming me into their homes so i mentioned that i found it difficult when i first became a christian because i didn't know how to eat in people's houses but actually hospitality has been one of the big ways i've experienced church as family um a couple of years ago, before the pandemic, I went 46 days in a row not having to feed myself because I was fed by people in the wow. church. And some people called me a scrounger. My mum, I think, um, was quite disgusted <laughs> about it. But do you know what? God spoke to me so powerfully about belonging, about being in community um, and, and just being part of a family through those 46 days where I was fed by other people. Um, but, you know, it's more than that. It's the fact that um, my church leader and his wife, they're also my friends, but, you know, for several Christmases in a row have said, do you want to come around on Christmas Day? Um, and they said I could bring my mum, who's not a Christian, not in the church, if I want to. And, and on a couple of those occasions, they told me what they're doing for the whole day. You know, at this time we're doing this, at this time we're doing that. And they're like, you are welcome for all of it. Or you can come in on the bits you want to come in on. And so even that for years, actually, on Christmas Day, I've, I've spent some time with my family, but then some time with my church family. And that's been really helpful because I think sometimes there's a, a British thing is that on special occasions, we lock down into family units 
uh, no pun intended on the lockdown word. But, you know, we that's when we think, right, this is time for family. So what that communicates to those of us who who aren't married and don't have kids is that that's a time where you exclude us. Whereas I believe it should be a time where you draw us in, that there shouldn't actually probably be precious times. I've even, I went out for dinner with a couple on their anniversary. I've been on someone's honeymoon with them. That was sort of an accident, but, you know, um, but no, it wasn't really an accident. It's just funny the way it came about. But but should we have these times where we say these are just us? I'm, I'm not sure what, that's what we see in the book of Acts. I, you know, it's not there, is it? Uh, this was me time, me and my household. Um, it's no, they had everything in common. They, even their possessions weren't their own. Um, you know, and I need to hear this as well. You know, one of my friends was pointing out to me recently that, um, I might talk about let's all share our possessions, but when it comes to sharing a thing like an iPhone charger, I am very, very possessive. <laughs> and it's funny the things that kind of we, we don't want to share. But so yeah, I think I think for me, I guess what I would like to see more of in our churches though is a higher value on friendship and deep, deep friendship. I, I've been looking, um, I've been reading a book called Made for Friendship by Drew Hunter and. What's astonished me as I've read that book, even as someone who highly values friendship, is how much the famous Christians of the past valued friendship. I mean, there are quotes in there from pretty much anyone you could think of. Calvin, Augustine, um, C.S. Lewis, uh, all sorts of people from the more recent times to, to way back talking about the value of friendship. And um, Drew quotes them one after the other. But then he also quotes the Apostle Paul things that I've never noticed in, in countless times of reading the New Testament. Like he refers to people as his beloved. He um, calls um, oh, the guy whose name I can never pronounce, Onesimus. Onesimus Who's the guy yeah. in Philemon? The other one. Yeah, him. Um, he says, my, he's my very heart. Wow. Um, some of the language that Paul uses to talk about his friends would seem to many of us, I think, a little bit obsessive, a little bit intense, a little bit over the top. But actually, as I read that book, it was it was probably uh, one of the most painful and joyful books I've ever read in that it excited my heart and my soul as I read it. Even in the Old Testament, um, God says, uh, I can't remember if it's in Deut Deuteronomy or Leviticus, but there's a place where God talks about the friend who is as your own soul. And I'd never noticed that description. And, and so I think there's so much more in the Bible about friendship than we realise because we go to sort of David and Jonathan or Ruth and Naomi and that's it. But there's so much more about friendship. And I think um, I'm really blessed by some incredible friends. And what's blessed me is friends who will make a commitment to me because as a single woman, part of the struggle, it's not, it's not necessarily about wanting to get married, although I do. It's also about the fact that you're no one's priority. Like when it comes to working out, shall I move away? Shall I go on holiday? Shall I go out for dinner tonight? Whatever it might be from the massive life changes to the daily things, you're no one's priority. Um, no one's thinking of you first and foremost, whereas obviously you can't move away without talking to your wife. Um, well, you can, but you should. Um, do you know what I mean? And, and so that sense for me of being no one's priority and having no commitment in my life was a real big thing for me. But God has brought people into my life, friends who are like, no, no, I'm committed to you. Um, and friends who've said to me, like, nothing's going to separate us in friendship except death. 
Now, to some people listening, that might sound, wow, like your friends are full on. But but that's what Ruth and Naomi had. So so it's okay to feel really strong feelings for your friends. It's okay to want to have deeply intimate, connected, committed friendships. In fact, it's not only okay, but I would thoroughly recommend it, whether you're married or single. I, I think from a lot of my married friends, you really need some decent, committed friends. You, you need friendship. We all do. But I think it's been neglected, and I'd love to see it being brought much more into our, our dialogue in church life. Really helpful. Again, really, um, um, yeah. Well, let's um, let's talk about uh, leadership as well, then, shall we? So we're redeeming the church, um, and we're talking about the the challenge, the difference in attitudes, and the challenges between. Um, class divides. Um, we talked about marriage and singleness divides, and the, the need to kind of repair some of that. Let's talk about leadership in the church and how you've found it as a woman in a church, um, and leadership circles around that. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I think I found leadership in the church quite difficult um, for a long time, and I think it started with things like. I don't know, you know, I've just had conversations with people in the past um, a long time ago, but are, are you even a leader? We're not sure if you're a leader. Um, and, and just some of those conversations that have been so unhelpful because then they just stick with you. And even if that person sort of changes their mind and is like, oh, no, you're clearly a leader. Those conversations just niggle away at you in a way that's really unhelpful. And you have to then deal with it, obviously, with God. Um but so those sorts of conversations, but I've also found it really difficult having to do lots of firsts. So I was the first woman on the staff leadership team of my church. Um, and when people found out I was going to be joining the staff leadership team, it meant that a lot of women came up to me and was like, oh, can you talk about this? Can you get this? Can you do this? And I was like, honestly, between me and God was saying, I do not want to be the poster child for women in leadership here. I'm not gonna be trying to smash my way through some glass ceilings with a battering ram. Like I don't want that role. Um, and, and even just by being in that role, you almost can't help but sort of have that role. And so I was a very reluctant leader, I think at first, um, partly because of being insecure, partly because of not wanting to have to push the way for others. Um, I mean, even taking on the leadership of Jubilee Plus, which was started in New Frontiers and is still very much a part of New Frontiers. You know, when I look around, there are incredible women around me. There are women I admire and respect, but it's hard to look around and see a lot of single women in, in like heading up things. Um, and, and so it means that you feel like you're always a bit out of your depth because you haven't got people you can go to and, and they've done it before you um so i mean don't get me wrong there's incredible women i've benefited hugely from um angela kem has been really really helpful to me um janet johnston who um is now in hedge end with andy really mentored me through the first couple of years uh, on on a church staff leadership team um and so there have been people i can look to but there's not been a huge range of people i can look to and there's not been single people i can look to um, for the most part so it's been a, it's been a struggle and I think in the mix of that then trying to manage myself again it, it all kind of comes down to how do I manage myself 
I think it's hard to describe what it feels like to constantly be in a room full of men. Um, and, and almost, I'm not sure that I could particularly articulate it even internally to myself, but how, how that feels. Um, but it's something you get used to, but it's not insignificant to, to often be the only woman in a room. Um, and, and actually, even to be honest, with taking on the leadership of Jubilee Plus, um, Martin Charlesworth has occasionally been invited to meet with the the apostles, uh, the UK apostles of New Frontiers, to talk about Jubilee Plus. And as a team, we've kind of had to talk about, well, that probably won't happen anymore now because I'm a woman, and that's okay. But then, if it does happen, I'll probably be the only woman in the room. And then, how do I? How do you? How do you manage that? Because you want to go in with all the confidence of your role and responsibility and the authority that God has given you, but you are trying to overcompensate to make sure that you don't look too forceful, you don't look too belligerent, you don't look like you've got a chip on your shoulder about being the only woman in the room. And, and trying to balance that means you're constantly thinking about how you behave, what you say, what tone of voice you're using, how you're coming across. In a way that I'm sure it's true for other people in other contexts as well, but kind of can feel quite isolating and can make you, again, sort of feel a sense of, I don't fit in here, I don't belong here. And then you can start to question, God, am I supposed to be here? Um, and so imposter syndrome can then kick in. And, and so I think for me, it has been a real struggle. And I think, again, the only real way to deal with that is to become more secure in God. Like not more secure in me, but just at, to become more secure in God so that I fear people less, so that I can just be comfortable if people, whatever people think of me. But that's a journey that I'm very much still on. And I think in this new role at Jubilee Plus, God is taking me to new levels of that and stretching me in it. But but I've definitely found it difficult. Um, I think what's helped is prophetic words. So Dave Fellingham, who, you know, is in New Frontiers, had a word for me probably nine, eight, nine, ten, something like that years ago, where he said um, that there are healthy restrictions to do with being a woman, for example, and there are unhealthy restrictions and that he felt that God was going to break off the unhealthy restrictions. And I think I hadn't thought about that word for a good few years, but then taking on the leadership of Jubilee Plus, it's been such a comfort to me to know that God said that years ago and now it's something I can hold on to and say well God because you said that years ago when I had no idea what it would mean now I can see it working out and I can believe you're with me in this and and that but yeah it's a battle and I think it's one that's hard to communicate when you're surrounded by so many men because obviously the men around you can't put themselves in your position and, and we can't expect them to and so even that, learning not to expect people around me to necessarily understand has been part of the journey. Yeah, it's part, I guess it's part of the thing that we're all becoming increasingly aware of, the need to um, hear, hear experiences like you've described, because if we are believing for churches and leadership teams of a diversity that honours God, then we ought to expect much more diversity. And so, you know, it strikes me as you're talking that your experience, the way you're talking about it, is not too dissimilar from how, say, Owen Hilton would talk about the black experience in leadership circles, or my friend I've spoken to elsewhere talked about the working class experience in leadership teams. It's the experience of feeling like you're, you're the only one from a particular 
you know, group that's different from the majority culture. And I think, was it Tom Head said to me the other day that if you're comfortable with everything in your church, then it's your culture. And what you're expressing, I guess, is being a woman in a, in a room or a leadership team where it's just men is this is not a, a, a female or a Natalie culture, whereas others in the room think well, this is our culture because we made it. We're used to being here. We feel comfortable here. And we all have to we all have to learn to tolerate being happy with less or feeling comfortable with less. Your experience is you know living with that tension on a regular basis most men in most i guess historically work workplaces but churches leadership teams certainly for the past 20 years our experience has been feeling comfortable in the room because it's our room <laughs> and if we but if we're prizing and believing for the kind of diversity that honors god we ought to also be listening to what you're saying and working out how to how to learn to be un- be be un- be more uncomfortable or less, you know, you know what I mean. You know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I would say though is that Dale Barlow said to me a few years ago, um, "Has being a woman ever stopped you from um, doing anything that you believe God's called you to do?" And in my experience, the answer to that is no. I, I and and it was really helpful that he asked me that question um, because he was asking it as a genuine question. But for me, it came with a challenge to think about how I speak about these things, because sometimes it's it's easy to get uh, wound up, to wind yourself up about things that actually may not be the whole truth of your experience. And even now, you know, my church um, in, uh, you know, King's Church Hastings and Bexhill, um, we've got several women on the leadership team now. Um, even we've kind of got um, a management team, which is three elders and then three women because our operations director is a woman, our finance director is a woman and I'm the community engagement director and I'm a woman. So actually the kind of three most senior management type staff who have director in their fancy job titles are all women. So actually, you know, it's easy for me to kind of remember not wanting to be the pioneer, not wanting to be the poster child or whatever, but actually to celebrate where we are now which is which is so far from when I started nine and a half years ago um, and would have probably been inconceivable back then. And it's not because of me. It's, it's just, you know, God's done lots of different things. But when you're a forerunner, it's easy to focus on the frustration and the pain rather than what a joy that you get to be the first. Uh, and it doesn't feel like a joy at the time. But when you look back, you're like, no, that's, that's great. That's that's something that God, you know, put me in that position and knew that he could hold my hand through it. And yeah, yeah and then here we are, 10 years. Later. That's wonderful. Yeah. And I think that word forerunner is a great word, probably a great word to describe you and the, the gift that you are to the church. I guess the challenge for forerunners is the need to look back over your shoulder sometimes and just rest and celebrate some of the things that God's done um, on the journey as you have created a slipstream for other people to follow. Um, Natalie, as we draw our time to a close, is there anything else that's in your heart or mind that you'd love to just share with us? Uh, I think just to encourage us all to uh, be on the lookout for people we can draw into leadership on any level who don't fit the mould. I think it's so important that we don't have like a kind of well the expression that's used often is a cookie cutter leadership model and I don't think we do have that as a movement we definitely uh, don't have that but I think in our individual churches in our small groups in our serving teams in our social action wherever it might be just just ask God 
to raise up the unlikely and, and be willing to um, handle that. And I think what I'd love to say to church leaders is that when Paul Mann brought me onto his team, I think I frustrated him enormously for several years. Um, and he's said that publicly at a new ground conference in the past. You know, he and I talk about it because putting leaders who are a bit different on your team is a battle. It's a frustration. They will annoy you. But actually, often God is at work both in you and in them to do things more than you would have done on your own um, and to do things in you. And, and so, yeah, don't don't just go with the comfortable and easy choices when you're bringing in through leaders, find the people who are going to be a right pain in the neck, but invest in them anyway and raise them up anyway. Thank you so much for your time of everything you've shared. It's been really moving and inspiring as I thought it would be. So <laughs> thank you so much and um, look forward to, to seeing all the ways that God is going to bless what you're doing at Jubilee Plus. You may not validate your ministry in the way that you expect with, you know, exactly the right numbers that you want, but I'm sure he will surprise you with more than you could have ever expected or imagined. So thank yeah. you. Thanks very much.